Today's, uh, today's scripture reading is from Matthew 7:15 uh, through 23. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonderful works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you who practice lawlessness. The word of the Lord. So have you ever agreed to do something, and then when you're doing that something you agreed to do, you think to yourself as you're doing it, why did I agree to do this? And that was me all this week as I tried to write this sermon. And as far as gospel readings go, the one that we have today, well, it's kind of icky. Prior to these verses, Matthew has written how John the Baptist has come to point the way to Jesus. Jesus has been baptized, has been tempted begins to preach and is called his first disciples. Jesus has just started to heal the sick. He has healed people with all sorts of diseases, seizures, demon possessions, and a large crowd has begun to follow him. So Jesus goes up on a mountain, sits down, and begins to teach his disciples. And this has become known as the Sermon on the Mount. And the scripture reading for today is near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In it, Jesus teaches the disciples about who is blessed and how to live. And before he ends the sermon to go on and heal a leper with a shriveled hand, Jesus speaks of false prophets. He says, beware of false prophets. You will know them by their fruits. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. A bad tree will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Also, people will think that they enter the kingdom of heaven, but really they are the bad trees. And then I will tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. So where is the good news in all of this? I read it again, and I came up empty. I read the entire Sermon on the Mount and could only really see people who are not salty enough being trampled by men. I see judgment, the fire of hell, people gouging out their eyes to keep from sinning. I see hypocrites and darkness and a house being washed away with the sand. And I realize that writing the sermon is going to be a lot harder than I think. So I seek out my good friend Google to see what sort of Bible commentaries are out out there on these verses. And a lot of them sound the same. There's one man, Cooper Abrams, a pastor from a church here in the United States, that writes that there will be in hell some very religious people who knew of Jesus, who did a lot of wonderful works and even miracles, yet Jesus said that he did not know them and what 
they did was a work of iniquity. These people are church members who may have had a head knowledge, but not a heart knowledge of Jesus. Many of them believe that baptism or the sacraments or other works would get them into heaven, and these are the false prophets, the bad trees bearing bad fruit that will live eternally in damnation. Make sure that you are a good tree bearing good fruit so that you will avoid the flames. And this is when Russell appears, not literally, but inside my head. And the only reason I feel in any way equipped to come up here ever and do what I'm trying to do right now is that I have spent the last 12 years attending Russell's Bible studies. And you could say that Russell is my Yoda. Now, in my many afternoons and evenings of procrastination to find out what these verses really mean, I did extensive research on whether Yoda was Jewish. And some people believe that he's actually Buddhist or Taoist or even a member of the occult practicing white magic. And since I titled this sermon, Russell is my Yoda, I wanted to make sure Russell wouldn't be construed as being anything other than a good man. So let's have a common understanding that when I say Russell is my Yoda, I am referring to a combination of the Sanskrit word yodha, meaning warrior, and the Hebrew word yodia, meaning one who knows. So Russell is my Yoda in that I know how to wrestle with the word by being trained by one who knows how to struggle. And sometimes I just need a refresher course on how to struggle with the word. So I'm getting all caught up in Cooper Abrams' hell when Russell appears. And he doesn't appear in a mountainside or in a foggy swamp, but rather he is very hiply dressed and appears in Aaron and Jeremy's living room. Now this makes sense because most of the Bible studies I have attended have been held in their living room, so that is where we are. Russell sits in a chair on the right-hand side of the room, and I sit on the couch to the left, and we are the only two people in the room. Russell looks at me and smiles as he nods his head. He looks left to the door and then down at his watch and then back at me. All right, I think we should begin. Let's pray. Amen. Russell leans forward and says, can I get someone to read chapter 7, verse 15 through verse 23? And since I'm the only person in the room, I read the verses. And when I am done reading, Russell pauses as he rearranges the Bible and yellow legal pad on his lap. He bends down and opens his messenger bag and digs around for a pen, finds it, and sits up to look at me. I think it would be helpful if we did a close reading of this pericope. So let's take a few minutes, say seven, to reread the text and make notes of anything that repeats or anything that sticks out as odd or questions we have. Should this pericope pericope be shorter or longer? What are the cracks in the text? What are the cracks in the text? The silence is broken by the occasional scratch of pen to paper, and this goes on for some time. And by minute five, I am done, and I look up and study the photo hanging on the wall behind Russell. It is a photo still from Chris Larson's film, Barn Razor. A man is in a barn. A metal bar runs from the left of the picture frame to the right. The man looks like he's about to do a pull-up, but he's, I think, in the resting position. He's just hanging there. I can almost see his feet swing back and forth above Russell's head. 
Russell finishes writing and looks up at me and says, Sonia, do you mind sharing what you have written? And I say, to be honest, Russell, I haven't written much. I made notes of the tree and the fruit image, the idea of the trees bearing fruit and the contrast of good and bad. I made note of the fire and being cast away. He nods and says, what do you think that means? And I bring up Cooper Abrams and all the other commentaries I had read. Russell looks at me and opens his mouth to speak and then closes his mouth. He turns his head to the left and a cup of steaming coffee appears. It's the perfect ratio of coffee to cream. And he drinks from the cup. Russell slowly puts the cup down on the side table and then looks up at me. And he says, I'm not really interested in what Cooper Abram has to say. What does Matthew say about Matthew? And I shrug my shoulders. He says, I think it would be like really good if we read like the entire book of Matthew to put the pericope in context. And I look up at him and I say, Russell, it's 27 chapters and only my fourth favorite gospel of the Bible. I am not reading all 27 chapters. And Russell shifts positions and takes a deep breath. His right hand pushes across his mouth to keep words from escaping and then moves up to rub his right eye before making an emphatic gesture in the air. And I have seen this tension and this movement before, but it's always been with Joe and Maria when he's trying to make a point or to get somewhere and they keep interrupting. And I know that I'm testing his patience. We both look down and begin to read from the beginning. And I instantly perk up. Despite Matthew being my faith, fourth favorite gospel of the Bible, the first 16, 17 verses are my most favorite genealogy of the Bible. And I share this with Russell. He tilts his head to the left. You have a favorite biblical genealogy? Yes, and a favorite 18th century anatomist. Really? I nod. I have to ask, just who is your favorite 18th century anatomist? Well, his name is John Hunter. He was the surly Scott who was the younger brother of William, a well-known and well-behaved doctor. William did well in school and did everything to be liked by society folk. John, on the other hand, also studied medicine but liked to grow facial hair, use foul language, and frequent um, the local pub. Russell smiles and says, I like him already. I go on and I say, yeah, the two brothers started a practice and medical school together. Even though John was smarter and was better skilled in dissection, he lacked social skills. Plus, to be an anatomist in that time meant you dissected dead bodies, and the only dead bodies available were convicted and executed criminals. Not to mention that obtaining those bodies broke every law and was a total social and religious taboo, not something a dignified man would be doing. So William was the face of the practice while John went to public executions. He waited along with other anatomists and seedy types under the gallows until the feet of the criminals dangled above his head. And then it was an all-out brawl to see who would get the bodies. John would bring them back to the practice where he and William would study them. They learned a lot about what goes on inside the body, and William became known as the father of obstetricians. But anybody knows that the father of obstetricians is really a mother whose name is midwife, but I will save that rant for later. 
Anyway, John is known as the father of surgery, and there's a whole museum of his specimens in London, located in the Royal College of Surgeons. This big museum of jars preserving the death of societies unwanted, fetuses of dead prostitutes preserved in clear fluids. He had preserved fetuses documenting the weekly changes of human development from within the womb. And there is an engraving his brother is famous for, and it illustrates a full-term fetus on the verge of birth, frozen and preserved as he is about to enter the birth canal. All these specimens came from the unwanted, and no one cared if a prostitute disappeared and ended up on a dissection table. They were the unclean, going to hell anyway, so they might as well be dismembered. Yet modern medicine grew out from all of this, but all those dead bodies led to organ transplants and C-sections and double bypass surgery. All that death brought life. Russell takes another sip of coffee, but in the end, we all still die. I nod, yeah, in the end, we're nothing more than a corpse on a table. We both look down at our Bibles. Russell breaks the silence. So, like, I'm not sure if I want to know why this is your favorite genealogy. Well, for the same reasons as I like John Hunter, it's a bit seedy. Now, normally a genealogy would set someone apart in a good way. You link this person to all that was great before them to say, take notice of this person. But Matthew's genealogy is different. Right away, he does something offensive and includes women. Women in first century Palestine were second-class citizens with no more rights than a slave. Women were unimportant, yet Matthew mentions five women in his genealogy. There's Tamar, Rahab, the wife of Uzziah, better known as Bathsheba, Ruth, and Mary. And these are not just women, but women of ill repute. Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute so Judah would sleep with her and father her child. Rahab was an actual prostitute who helped the Israelites capture Jericho, and Bathsheba was a married woman who was seduced and slept with King David. Ruth was a Moabite, a people who were considered unclean, and Mary, who was pregnant out of wedlock by someone other than her husband, and could easily be stoned for such an offense. And the men are really not all that better. But that is the kind of people Jesus comes from. He is born of a sinful generation. He is born into a sinful generation. And this generation receives a child that is to be named Jesus, which means God with us. It's a story of death leading to life that leads to life. It seems like a great way to start a gospel. Russell lifts his coffee mug halfway to his mouth and then pauses. So I think it would be really helpful again if we did a close reading, but of the entire book. Again, look for any words that repeat, themes, bracketing, bookends. Look for the cracks. And this is where it starts to be work. So I start making a list as Russell um, rearranges the papers on his lap and then stands up to get another cup of coffee. He returns to his chair, sitting with his left foot tucked underneath his right knee. So is there anything you would like to share? I answer, well, there's a constant men mentioning on how Jesus is fulfilling the words of the Old, Old Testament prophets. The word dream repeats throughout the beginning of the book. Fruit, branches, and trees are repeated as well as fire. Matthew says that John, the Baptist, baptizes with water, but Jesus baptizes with fire. And what I want to know is what does it mean to be baptized by fire? Russell looks at me and then at his Bible. 
maybe the prophets would be a good place to start. And I look up at Chris's photo. The man is still hanging there, his feet dangling above Russell's head. Just then, Aaron appears in the doorway of the kitchen. Both Russell and I are startled as I look to my left and he to his right. I didn't realize anyone else was here. I was here the whole time, Aaron says. She holds her back with one hand and a Bible in the other. I was just making something for us to eat. I thought we could share a meal together when we are done. And Russell and I look at each other, smile and nod, because Aaron always cooks up something good. Aaron pulls up a chair and places it between Russell and myself. And as she sits, she says, I'm wondering if we could look at chapter 12, verses 6 through 7. Russell reads the verse aloud. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not condemn the innocent. And as he is reading, I wipe my forehead with the back of my hand and beads of sweat start to form above my upper lip. I notice Russell's black drugstore readers keep falling off the tip of his nose, and he keeps pushing them back up. He reaches around to his back pocket and pulls out a red bandana and swipes it across his forehead and across his mouth, moving left to right. Erin rubs her stomach in a circular motion. She says, my Bible says that verse, that those verses refer to the book of Hosea. It says the main message of the prophet Hosea is to proclaim God's compassion and love that cannot let us go. I'm wondering if we could also look at chapter 12, verse 39. Erin is beginning to sway slightly from side to side. She inhales through her nose and slowly exhales through her mouth. And this time I read aloud. Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. I look up at Aaron and say, Jonah proclaimed destruction, but God showed compassion. God's love is for all. Aaron nods and continues to breathe in through her nose and out from her mouth. Now read chapter 9, verses 12 through 13. Russell turns the pages of his Bible and reads, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Aaron's breathing now is more like gasps. Now look at the way the book ends. It ends just the way it began. Jesus says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. As Aaron is speaking, I look at Chris's photo. The hanging man is gone, and the, and the barn is now filled with animals, sheep to the right, goats to the left, and cattle in the back. I open my mouth to say something, but I stop, because the photo is now empty. The hanging man is no longer there. The animals are no longer there. In fact, the barn is nothing but a charred pile of wood. With the barn burned to the ground, I can now see the moon. The moon is brighter since the barn burned. Reflecting the light of the sun, the moon is a bright blood red. In fact, the whole house is surrounded by the reflection, surrounded in a fiery glow. Erin begins to moan and rock from side to side, slowly moving forward in her chair so that she is sitting on the edge of it. Water rushes from her thighs like a river flooding the living room. Her moans become a growl. It is a low, guttural growl of a woman bearing down, and the whole house begins to groan, and it feels 
as if even the walls are contracting around us. Erin throws her head back as she places both hands on her stomach, and the glow from the moon grows more intense. Erin's screams are now like a howl as a wave of fire billows from her body. The flames rush to every corner until the entire living room is lit by a ring of fire. And I turn my face to Russell, and his whole body is in flames. His features blur in a red-orange flickering dance, but I can see that he is cradling something. I can't tell what, but he is cradling it in his arms. Then the floor beneath his chair gives way and Russell disappears into the flames that rise from below the floorboards. The blood-red sky pushes through the front door and flames fill the porch. The door flies off the hinges and the piano window above my head shatters. I duck my head to avoid the flying glass. And when I manage to open my eyes, I see that the Bible that had been resting on my lap has been replaced by a baby, a baby boy. He looks up at me with big brown eyes. Despite what is going on around us, his eyes remain calm. He waves his arms up and down quickly like babies do when they are excited to see you. Instinctively, I offer him my index finger and he immediately grips it tight and pulls my right hand to his chest. He reaches out to my left hand and pulls it to his chest as well. And all I can feel is the rise and fall of his breath and the steady rhythm of his heart. The floor beneath us gives way, but I can't stop looking into his eyes. And as we fall, are submerged and go down in flames, he grips my hands tighter, holding them close to his chest, never letting go.